everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew Podcast. I hope you are healthy and hanging in there during these challenging and honestly strange times. I hope you are taking care of yourself mentally, physically, spiritually. Maybe that's getting outside and enjoying some fresh air or connecting with loved ones through video chat. Or maybe it's just taking a moment to breathe. Wherever you are at right now with all of this is okay because we're all there too. And from all of us at Cashew, we want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And we hope that this series can offer tools and resources that you can use to continue doing the amazing work that you're already doing. And with that, let's all take a deep breath and then start this episode. This morning, I am talking with Jamie Sorensen about how COVID-19 is impacting the child welfare workforce around the state of Minnesota. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hey, good morning. How are you? Good, good. Hanging in there. Could you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role? Sure. Uh, Jamie Sorensen, I'm the Division Director with Child Safety and Permanency at the state of Minnesota, Department of Human Services. And so in Minnesota, that's the role that oversees child protection, foster care and adoption. And uh, we at the state are working with all 87 counties and uh, 11 tribes in the state of Minnesota. It's a big job, lots of areas of the state and even within the agency itself at the state that you're having to oversee right now. Yeah, you know, it is a lot. But in Minnesota, we at the state are considered to be the supervising agency and the county and the tribal local child welfare agencies are really doing the hard work with kids and families throughout the state and are just really championing this pandemic. And we couldn't be more proud to be supporting Minnesota's workforce. And with everything that is happening and, you know, so much change every day, I'm also just wondering, like, how are you doing and how are you adjusting with all of the changes? You know, it's interesting. At the state, we are working from home, so none of us are uh, in our offices. We've all had to learn, you know, WebEx and Zoom and other apps and just the technical uh, elements of working remotely. It's going okay. You know, we have lots of regular meetings where we take the opportunity to really do our planning and our work. Certainly people are at home with their kids who are trying to do school and other things. And so, you know, everybody is faced with different challenges, but people are coping and really doing, I think, their very best uh, in these circumstances. So I think we're doing okay. You know, it's been a long haul and I think we probably have a stretch ahead of us, but people are making the most of the technology and um, not only are we using it to talk with each other and to do our work together, but we're really using it to talk with MAXA and uh, county directors, other county stakeholders, tribal leaders, and private providers. And so it's been really an experience where everybody's on a different learning curve, but really making the very best of the circumstance. Absolutely. I think we're seeing in so many ways just a lot of grace and, and patience and support for each other. Mm -hmm. And we get to see, you know, kids in our WebEx sessions in the background. And um, that's been fun as well. So really the dog and the whole family is welcome to our meetings at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's kind of been one of my favorite things because my own animals, you may also during this conversation see a cat or two, (laughs) seeing everyone's kiddos and animals. You know, it's a different way of connecting all around, but there's 
mm-hmm. this added layer of seeing each other in our personal spaces that changes the connection. Right. I know this is a big question and we can dig into it as much as we can. But if you could share with folks listening as of today, how has COVID-19 impacted the child welfare workforce around the state of Minnesota so far? COVID-19 is a very serious pandemic, and we're very concerned about children and families throughout the state of Minnesota, particularly vulnerable children and families. And we know that across the nation, COVID-19 has impacted communities differently. It's impacted American Indian communities and tribes differently. It's impacted African-American children, families, and communities differently. So we really have to attend to this very serious pandemic broadly and accordingly based on the experience of communities. In child welfare, one of the things that we think is really an important hallmark of safety is that face-to-face contact with the child, with the family. And we have to balance that with the CDC and Minnesota Health Department's advice and recommendations on slowing the spread of coronavirus through social distancing, quarantine, when that's necessary. And so to strike the right balance in child safety and well-being and attending to slowing the spread of COVID-19 so we can flatten the curve, so we can give our medical facilities and providers time to prepare for what may be around the corner in this pandemic in Minnesota. What we've done is looked at those intersections where there is a required face-to-face contact. And we've made requests to the federal government for waiver and to modify toward video conferencing, telephone conferencing when that's appropriate and safe. And um, we've also requested those waivers through our commissioner at DHS and the governor's office. And so the initial face-to-face contacts in investigation and assessment secured a waiver so that there can be other options instead of that face-to-face in some instances with monthly caseworker contacts, a very similar thing. But We've got these challenges, right, about how important it is for kids to have contact with their families, particularly younger kids. And how do those visitations happen in light of, you know, some agencies doing those in their buildings that are now closed to the public, other providers that are no longer open during the pandemic? Um, How do those visits get facilitated and how do you transport a child safely in your vehicle to a visit? And when a child leaves a foster home and they go on a visit, how able is the foster home to receive them back and keep everybody safe from exposure. So lots of challenges, right? And like what is driving many of these challenges is the lack of personal protective equipment in Minnesota. The lack of PPE is a very significant variable and is impacting the child welfare workforce, kids and families, and how we do our business. So in absence of PPE, we really are striving to make these important modifications to strike the right balance between child safety, well-being, and attending to social distancing. So there's other practice elements that we have to attend to as well. Our foster parents are really stretched right now. Kids are at home. They're having to help them with school. If a child gets sick, what are the care provisions? Um, How is quarantining happening? And so how do we keep the foster care resource in Minnesota strong and vital during this time as well? There's just a lot of policy implications kind of everywhere you turn in terms of how you manage during this 
particular pandemic. And we know that the child welfare system is a system and it's not just the local county and tribal child welfare workers. It's the local county attorney's office, it's the tribal courts, it's the state courts, it's law enforcement, it's providers throughout the nonprofit sector. And all of those partners are impacted by this work. And so video conferencing for court hearings, how does one meet the threshold of reasonable efforts, the important court finding in cases in this current context when so many service providers are closed and just lots of problems to be solved. And at the end of the day, we really have to manage this pandemic and we really have to attend to minimizing exposure to COVID-19. Very important for the child welfare workforce because many of our workers, right, they have families, they have kids. We want to keep everybody safe. Early on in that question you mentioned and that I don't want to lose or not come back to is, you know, in our child welfare system, not just in Minnesota, across the country, around the world, there are communities that are disproportionately impacted and overrepresented in the system and how some of those same communities who are overrepresented in our child welfare system are now also disproportionately being impacted due to health inequities and inequalities um, in their communities related to the pandemic. And again, I know there's not a lot that we know for certain, but wondering what concerns you have or maybe some of what the conversations are already around, like how that might impact us in Minnesota, you know, Mm -hmm. as time goes on and how the pandemic and how that is impacting some communities more than others, Mm -hmm. how then we might see that show up even more in our child welfare disparities and disproportionality. When we look at the pandemic nationally, we know that there's particular tribes that have been seriously impacted. And we also know that disproportionately African-Americans have been impacted, not just by exposure and, you know, experiencing coronavirus, but also in terms of deaths. So as we look at Minnesota, you know, when we first started looking at the data from the health department, we were seeing that about 7% of the infections in Minnesota uh, were African-American and about 1% American Indian. And so those seem to be somewhat aligned with um, how those communities are generally represented in the overall population. But as of today, when we look at uh, the data from the health department, we see that now 12% of the infections are African-American. And so it's a pretty, you know, quick climb in a short period of time, right? So when we think about this pandemic and we think about different communities, African-American communities, for example, Uh, reported that people, you know, have a higher rate of underlying health issues that present the problem for coronavirus exposure. We also know that many people are, you know, laborers in uh, in the service industry. And so um, there's people who are not able to stay home from work. They're having to go out and continue to work. And they don't always have the PPE that they need to continue with their employment. Also, where do you get your information? There's so many different sources of information, not all of it aligns. And so, you know, to what extent do people understand social distancing, PPE? What degree do people understand how we have to protect each other uh, in this pandemic? And we also know that there are communities that are going to have a more difficult time getting access to testing, right? So that brings in concerns about kind of this idea of silent spread, right? We don't really know what's happening with the epidemic in certain communities. Access to health care. 
you know, not everybody has the ability or the income to go out and get, you know, two weeks worth of over-the-counter medications, toilet paper, paper towel, food, the basic provisions that they're recommending that you have in your household. So, you know, people are experiencing different barriers and challenges when it comes to how they navigate this epidemic. And ultimately what's going to happen, it's going to impact the rate at which people are exposed and become infected and morbidity and mortality rates. And so what we are working to do is really create those explicit focus areas within our view of the pandemic and to begin to do the outreach and the communication and the information sharing that needs to happen and to be trying to strategize around the basic provisions that people need to stay at home, essentially. They have the ability to do that. And the messaging around keeping each other safe and why this is so important. I think, you know, we hear varying messages about how serious this illness is, right? But like, look at the lives that have been lost. And it is really a very serious, you know, matter here in Minnesota. And, you know, at this point in time, there's still more testing needed. And so, you know, we hope at some point in the not too distant future, that that testing will increase, that more PPE will become available generally to people broadly, um, and that we'll have a better look at really what is happening with the epidemic in Minnesota and how in our child welfare system we can support and attend to the needs of people. We also have to think about the policies that are implemented right now for people. You can't be evicted. There is maybe um, the ability to delay mortgage payments. You know, maybe people have arrangements with their landlords to delay rental payments, but at the end of the peacetime emergency declaration, what happens then? How do people catch up then on rent payments or mortgage payments? What happens for people who have been in unemployment for a longer period of time or out of work for a longer period of time? Um, and so we're also thinking, you know, post the peacetime emergency, our system needs to be prepared with the repercussions of what's occurred during this pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, everything you're starting to mention, too, related to the pandemic and impacting people's employment, food security, the ability to provide safe and stable housing, right. the shift to distance learning, and mm-hmm. whether families even have the tools and resources to do that, and us knowing what that connection to child welfare can be. And so exactly what you're saying about, you know, we can foresee some challenges and some long-term impacts due to that. I'm wondering if from the data you all are seeing at the state level around our state, if reports that are coming in related to safety concerns for children or other things, if you're already seeing that impact, you know, if there are already a change in severity in some of these instances and just kind of what that's looked like for the agencies as well as the state to kind of Mm -hmm. sort through. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've seen a 50% reduction in allegations of maltreatment being reported to child welfare agencies across the state. And, you know, largely from mandated reporters, right, from schools. And so kids and families are more isolated. And we do hear about increased incidents of domestic violence. We also know you know, through our data and through other studies that have been done in Minnesota, you know, some of the determinants that drive people toward deeper end involuntary systems like child welfare. So, you know, things like a family configuration of five or more children, or if somebody has a child with a particular uh, limiting kind of disability, parental substance use, parental mental health, um, a lack of transportation, right? All of these things can be determinants to these deeper end systems. And so, you know, we know 
know that there have been kids and families that have exited the child welfare system in the not too distant past that are living with some of those determinants that give us pause or create an additional concern for the safety of those kids and the well-being of those families in general. And so we are beginning to work with local agencies to reach out and to try to attend to those kids and families that are no longer in our primary system, but are at risk of touching our system again. So more of a prevention effort, but at the same time, providing information to hospitals, medical providers, and to um, school personnel about, you may want to ask some more probative questions around, you know, what kind of food or if kids are having, you know, the ability to eat at home and just being more vigilant about how kids are presenting when they do have contact with them um, through current technology and how school is currently being delivered throughout the state and the different school districts. I mean, and I think too, in a lot of these interviews and a lot of conversations just generally and connecting with people more during this time, it seems there is this theme around just coming together and or like it takes a village, right? And so... I'm just wondering if there are other ways you've seen or heard community coming together and, and showing up and showing support for each other that are kind of doing some of that prevention too, even if it's not directly child welfare led or, you know, involved. Yeah, you know, one of the most recent things I saw this weekend is the ability for people to make masks or other protective, um, personal protective equipment and for them to deliver them to a local fire station. And then those will be um, broadly distributed, um, which I think is like really a great way for community to come together and certainly, you know, a strategy that could impact kids' families and also our child welfare workforce. And so I think those initiatives are really, really meaningful. But, you know, I, I agree that, you know, when you look at our state child welfare system and you think about the county and tribal child welfare systems, people are really approaching this pandemic from the perspective of kind of that community. How can we support? How can we be helpful? And real empathy and regard for the vulnerabilities that people are experiencing, you know, as this pandemic really enters into the state of Minnesota. And so, you know, our policies that we've tried to impact and where we're trying to go with interventions is those efforts really towards support and basic provisions and, you know, attending to, we don't want to have kids stuck in the system because of this pandemic and making sure that all of those things are moving forward as well. And that, you know, if a child is in foster care and is positive and experiencing coronavirus, that, you know, we don't delay them going home if they were planned to go home, that we build the supports around their family so that their family can still receive them and take care of them and they can return to their family of origin. So really trying to attend to the experience of kids and families and to understand that we want kids and families to be together and that as we look at the things we're instituting and thinking about that we do it with just real humanity and regard for some of those most vulnerable around us. I think of in particular the public charge rule with those parents um, who are undocumented or are in the process of securing permanent visa status and citizenship and 
you know, just the barriers that poses to them in terms of being able to access like foundational things that they may need for themselves and their kids. And I just hear a lot of stories about how community is stepping forward and how people are advocating for everyone to have access to what it is they need to make it through this stay at home provision and to, you know, meet the needs of their kids and families and to keep everybody safe. And you mentioned some of the policy practice change kind of provisions you all have are working on related and have been working on related to visitation and contact with children, court hearings and kind of continuing the hearings and, and how one engages in that process. Are there any other key policy changes or practice guidelines that have come out or are on the horizon that you think it's important for maybe some of our frontline professionals who are listening or community? providers still on the front lines trying to fill in the gaps of services for families right now to know? Yeah, you know, one of one of the things that we're really wrangling with right now is in Minnesota, there was a waiver granted to the fingerprint background studies and the CANS studies probing into maltreatment registries in other states when someone is becoming licensed as a foster care provider or an adoptive parent. And, you know, the fingerprinting facilities, about 50% of them have shut down. And at this point in time, at the Department of Human Services, the Office of Inspector General and the background studies area are not processing fingerprint background checks and are not currently doing the check-in maltreatment registries in other states. There's also been a federal waiver granted for the background checks for now. And for the maltreatment registries in other states, you have to make the request for the information, but you can proceed prior to receiving the results. Those waivers are, I think, not optimal, right? And they are born out of really not having access to fingerprinting and states just being overwhelmed and not being able to check registries. But at the same time, we aren't relieved from them in a way where it won't impact Title IV e-funding in the state of Minnesota. So we have to be very careful about that because that's an expenditure for which we rely heavily upon federal Title IV e-reimbursement. So it's one of those that are very tricky to navigate and it's about state law in Minnesota, it's about federal law, and it's about federal funding. And so how do we kind of navigate through these items when there's multiple players in place and just sorting through the policy and trying to minimize the impact when we know that something optimal is not happening. So there's those kinds of issues um, that we're trying to sort out and navigate through. We're continuing to strive for procuring PPE for the workforce so that there's a better supply of those resources to keep workers, kids, and families safer. So that's an important piece. And then also continued guidance around the continuation of proceedings and hearings and uh, reasonable efforts and those kinds of practices for kids and families to continue with the visitation um, to the extent that you can and you can keep everybody safe and social distanced. So we don't have necessarily any additional emerging um, guidance around uh, more elements for face-to-face contact because it looks like probably in our system we've addressed those at this point in time. You know, do we have the foster care resource that we have that we need for those parents? 
who aren't in our system, who have kids, who maybe don't have family in the area, don't have a social network, should they get sick, be hospitalized and unavailable uh, to care for their children? What is the guidance and the strategy around that? So we're thinking about those things as well. The use of DOPAs, the use of others to come in and temporarily care for children when parents are unavailable to do so. So um, just lots of little different networks kind of along the way to make sure that not just kids and families in our system are attended to, but that we're also preparing for those kids and families that are unknown to us at this time. Earlier on, you mentioned how some of the other important divisions like Department of Health, Public Health are also actively having to respond and and change policy practice in many ways. I'm wondering if at this time, if you're seeing any difference or ways that the different areas are coming together for more of a coordinated response that you think would be helpful to share or for people to know? The sharing of information from the Department of Health is really imperative. And the strategies that the Department of Education are employing in terms of continuing education with students broadly across the state is really important. And so we do have intersections established for regular communication with the health department and also MDE. And I don't know if people haven't had a chance to look at the Minnesota Department of Health website. It is well done and contains uh, such good and thorough information about every angle of this pandemic in Minnesota. And so I'd encourage people to take a look at that. So, you know, at the state, we are really intersecting with those other areas of practice within the Department of Human Services, whether it be background studies, licensing, child care, economic support, behavioral health, etc. Um, we're also reaching out and having those kinds of interactions with MDE and the Minnesota Department of Public Health. So very important that the system come together at those intersections. And there are broad work groups out of the governor's office that are really designed to do some of that exchange. And there are also initiatives like the Children's Cabinet out of the governor's office designed to bring those different agencies and partners together to better address things like what is the current service array and resources across the state of Minnesota. And then also, what are the issues that we need to really be teeing up and working on together um, to make sure that we more comprehensively address the needs of kids and families throughout the state and to do it proactively to the extent that we can. So I think those collaborative pieces are in place and, and I think that they're serving a pretty good function. One of the things that this pandemic has taught us is there are things that happen that require us to be responsive quickly to the needs of kids and families. And if we're going to have an impact to be able to engage change and modification quickly. We are not a nimble system at the state and at many of the local agencies. And so for us to secure the proper permissions to make a change in practice or policy um, takes a level of time that begins to impact how helpful and effective we are as a system. So one of the things that we have to do after this pandemic is not only talk about how do we come to intersect with these other important areas of work within our state, whether it be public health, Department of Education, behavioral health, et cetera, but also where are we procuring the authorities that we need in the future to be nimble when a pandemic or some other unforeseen, you know, catastrophe or whatever it may be in the community requires us to respond quickly and to change how we're doing business quickly. So I think that's one of the things that we really have to talk about. We really have to talk about also our kind of systems behind the work, whether it be 
the social service information system or the net study system or just these other systems that are supposed to support our practice, but yet they are so integrated into every move we make that they are defining in some respects where we can make deviations and where we can make changes. And so that's problematic as well. So I think it's twofold. I think it is really um, the intersections, how are we working together and where are we interfacing and how we are comprehensively really looking at the needs of kids and families and doing it uh, as proactively as we can. But then also how are we designing the system to be nimble when the environment and the needs of kids and families call for that. And as folks are, you know, it's day by day and we move along, are there, is there one place or a couple places that you think are kind of essential places for frontline workers or those other professionals, community providers serving children and families that may be involved or at risk of involvement in the system to kind of go to for current policy changes, practice guidance, and even future updates as we learn more? Like if there's a, a webpage or a place folks can subscribe for updates. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Minnesota Department of Human Services website, can uh, you can drill down and you can look at the different waivers and the different policies that have been implemented. And you can look at the different communications that have gone out as well. And we're regularly communicating with the uh, child welfare field in Minnesota when we make an update to a practice or a policy. And so we'll either do it through a bulletin or we'll do it through an email broadly to uh, county tribal directors, managers, and supervisors. The ACF Children's Bureau website, I think, is also a good place to look for updates on public instruction that they administer to states around different waivers. A really good place to look for information is to, and I know that this takes some time and effort, but I would encourage people to really look at the governor's executive orders and read those because there's a lot of good information contained in those about kind of what's happening just broadly in our state and gives people, I think, a lot of insight in terms of how long are we in this stay-at-home status and just kind of what's happening with this pandemic in the state. If I didn't say this already, the Minnesota Public Department of Health's website is excellent. And so we're going to continue to meet with MAXA uh, representatives and county directors two times weekly. It's what we've been doing. And we meet as a division every morning. We have two meetings on the books, one at 9 o'clock and one at 2 o'clock. If we don't need the 2 o'clock, we cancel that. But born out of those convenings then our bulletins, emails, memorandums to broadly the state, child welfare, local county and tribal agencies. What gives you hope right now? There's a number of things that give me hope right now. You know, I don't know a time in my history in child welfare where child welfare has ever been so necessary and so important. And to kind of bear witness to the extraordinary directors and managers and supervisors and child welfare workers and courts and law enforcement and private providers and universities that have hung in there and really stepped up to the challenge gives me a great deal of hope. In Minnesota, I think Governor Waltz has provided extraordinary leadership and transparency and moved us all along in a process that made really good sense for all of us here in the state. And so I think people have come together and I think we have made changes and implemented modifications thoughtfully, knowing in some instances they're not optimal, but they're temporary and necessary because of this pandemic. And just the spirit of people working together, the humanity that 
you know, you can witness in the conversations and the decisions that are made, you know, just give me a great deal of hope. There's a lot to be concerned about and there's a lot to worry about. And this is a very, very serious pandemic, but we will get to the other side of it and we will at some point be able to learn from this experience and better our system and our responses on the other side, you know, in the face of, I think, fear and the unknown, because we don't really know what lies ahead in the coming weeks, knowing that we've got these systems and relationships and structures in place to be talking and thinking and responding gives me a great deal of hope. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking time out of what I know is probably a very busy and hectic schedule to talk with me today and to share more about kind of what your day-to-day work is looking like and how things are shifting rapidly um, every day at the state and around our state. And so just thank you again. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. This podcast was produced by Karina Berry. Our series editors were Denise Cooper and Cliff Dalber. Music was composed by Big Cats. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division. For more information, please visit the CASHU website at cascw.umn.edu. Thank you for listening and stay well, everyone.